Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. All right. Good morning, everybody. So this is week five now in our series Walking in the Light, Lessons from 1 John, and we're going to be picking up right where we left off last time, which is in chapter 3, starting in verse 11. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to turn there now. Chapter 3, verse 11. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the chance to worship together and to study the scriptures together. And Lord, we just want to be open to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us today. Uh, We invite your Holy Spirit to work in us and among us. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. Chapter 3, starting in verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands 
and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit that He gave us. So you may have noticed that John has a couple main points that he likes to return to over and over in this letter. He's happy to keep coming back to them because they're that important. And in this passage, once again, he emphasizes the importance of keeping God's commands. But this time, he's very clear about what he means when he talks about God's commands. He's not talking about things like dietary laws or Sabbath regulations or holiday observances. He's not talking about, you know, fasting on Friday or your hairstyle or, or dress codes. He has two main things in mind, right? Verse 23, this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Believe in Jesus and love one another. These are the commands that he has in mind. And we should note that those two commands are related, right? Jesus, if we believe in him, right, we should recognize that he commanded us to love one another as I have loved you. If we believe in Jesus, then we're going to take that command seriously, right? If you say, I believe in my doctor, and she writes you a prescription, and then you just throw it in the trash, well, you don't really believe in your doctor, right? Jesus wrote us a prescription, love one another as I have loved you. And so if we really believe in Jesus, then we should be following that prescription. We should be taking it seriously. And John says that this prescription was part of the original message that they received. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, isn't that interesting? See, in my experience, most of the time when someone says, we shared the gospel message, they mean, well, we shared the good news that Jesus died on the cross for people's sins, and then we invited them to accept that, to believe that. And of course, that is certainly part of the core message of the gospel, the core message of Christianity. But when the people in John's church first heard the gospel, they did not just hear, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so believe that. They heard, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and so you also should be forgiving and love one another. Right? That was part of the core message. Those things went together. That, that's core to the gospel. Now, the word love translated from agape, it is used a lot in this little letter. You may have noticed that. I believe it is used more in this little letter than any other book in the New Testament. And that raises the question, do we understand what love really is? What are we thinking of when we hear, hear that word, love? I hope it's clear that John isn't talking about romance here. He's certainly not saying that unless we have a romantic partner, then we are walking in darkness. If that were true, then Jesus spent his life walking in darkness. The Apostle Paul was walking in darkness. 
So that's definitely not what John means. Romantic love can be a beautiful part of life, one of a great gift uh, from God, but you don't have to have a romantic partner in order to love as Christ loved us. Right? So, what is love? Well, John helps us to understand what love is in this passage with both a negative example, so what love is not, and then a positive example, what love is. So what is love not? Well, he points to the example of Cain. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, the story of Cain and his brother Abel, it comes from the fourth chapter of Genesis. And about two months ago, we looked at that story together. If you were here, hopefully you remember that. Uh, Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. So they are the second generation of human beings that are featured in the Bible. And just one generation into the human story, violence enters the picture when Cain kills his brother Abel. So here's a way of thinking about this. If the story of Adam and Eve is the story of sin entering into the world, then the story of Cain and Abel is showing us what sin ultimately leads to. Right? It leads to violence. It leads to brother turning against brother. Now, Adam and Eve's real failure, their primary sin was that they did not trust that God is truly good. That was the essence of their sin. Eve was deceived into thinking that God told them not to eat from that tree because he wanted to withhold something from them. Eve was deceived into eating from the tree because she was convinced that God was being selfish and controlling and withholding and dishonest. And so she came to doubt God's goodness and love, and so she took from the forbidden tree. And then, of course, the story of Cain and Abel comes immediately afterwards. And so it shows us what happens when humanity doubts the goodness and love of God. When we do that, it is only a matter of time before we turn against one another. Unless we can believe that God is real and trustworthy and good, then we are going to have trouble loving other people well. So, John presents Cain as the example of what love is not. Do not be like Cain. Now, it might seem obvious. Well, of course, love does not look like murder. We should not be murderers, right? But, you know, if you consider human history, it might not be that obvious to everybody. Throughout history, and even today, there are many people who think that faithfulness to God looks like killing the right people. That's what the 9-11 hijackers thought, right? It's what every religious terrorist thinks. It's what some people identifying as Christian have thought when they burned heretics at the stake, or uh, when they supported the Crusades. If we ever find ourselves thinking that faithfulness to God looks like killing the right people, we should remember John's words. Do not be like Cain. 
that first murderer. Now, John says that Cain was motivated to kill his brother because his brother's actions were evil, or sorry, because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. And what John seems to be saying there is that Abel's goodness was intolerable for Cain. He couldn't stand it. Now, why would that be? Well, probably because it was a reminder to him of his own evil actions, right? The contrast, Abel's righteousness, brought out for Cain an awareness of his own, his own wickedness, and he felt judged by that. Now, it wasn't that Abel had actually done anything wicked to Cain. He had just tried to do the right thing. But that provoked this rage in his brother. And so Cain sought to remove his feeling of inadequacy by removing Abel. And when you think about it, that is the same dynamic that we saw at work with Jesus and those who opposed Jesus, right? It wasn't that Jesus had done anything wrong. It was that he had done everything right. And so Jesus' righteousness exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the time. And that provoked some people to want to kill Jesus and to try to make that happen. So sometimes... You lose friends, not because you did the wrong thing, but because you did the right thing. And now your presence is intolerable to them. Because they've chosen differently. Now, of course, part of the reason that John brings this up is because there had been the church split. right? If you've been here, you know we've been talking about this. This letter was written in the wake of a church split, where a lot of people had left, and John was trying to reassure those who had stayed. And what John wants them to understand is that they weren't rejected by these people because they had done something wrong, but because they had done something right. And the story of Cain and Abel shows, and the story of Jesus, right, that sometimes that is what happens. Now, I put all that out there, and now I also want to give a word of caution. Don't always assume that any rejection that you experience is due to your righteousness. Okay? It may be because you're being a jerk. Right? One of the worst things that a Christian can do is have an arrogant, judgmental attitude. Right? And when you have that arrogant, judgmental attitude, any rejection that you experience, you perceive as some kind of persecution. And what we need to remember is that sometimes we're rejected because we're like Cain, not because we're being like Abel. But at the same time, a passage like this reminds us that we can also be rejected because we are like Abel. Caleb? All right. Or like Jesus, right? So... We always, we always have to keep that in mind, right? And we need to have the discernment 
to recognize which it is, if we've experienced some kind of rejection. Is it because I'm being more like Cain or being more like Abel? And there are a couple things that you can do to help yourself in the discernment process, like sitting down with a trusted brother or sister in Christ and saying, well, this is what happened. Can you be honest with me? Someone that you can really trust to be honest with you. Do you think the rejection I'm experiencing is because I've done the right thing or the wrong thing? And then there's also, you can kind of interrogate yourself with some questions like, was I rejected for being loving or unloving? Was I feeling envious before my rejection? Uh, did I feel hatred prior to my rejection? Right? These kinds of questions, they can be clarifying. Am I being more like Cain or more like Abel? But, returning to the subject of love and what it isn't. So it's not like Cain. It does not envy. That matches what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It does not turn to violence. It does not seek to silence those who demonstrate righteousness. Right? People of love, uh, they don't feel judged by righteousness, but they may feel convicted. They may be humble enough to see another person's righteousness and then feel inspired to, to change. To grow, right? So Cain is the example of what love is not. And even if you weren't paying attention when I read the scripture passage, I'm sure you can take a good guess at who the example of what love is, is, right? Of course, it's Jesus. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus shows us the real essence of love, and the real essence of love is a giving of ourselves. A giving of ourselves. A giving of ourselves for the good of others. Love, agape, is more than just liking something intensely. Right? That is the way that the word love is often used in popular language. I love ice cream, which means I like it intensely. And there is nothing wrong with using the word love in that way. That's one of the ways that that word gets used. That's the way language works. No shame in that. But what we have to understand is that when John uses this word, when the New Testament uses this word, it means something more than just liking intensely, enjoying something intensely. You can, you can love someone truly and not really even like them very much or enjoy them very much, right? Because what love really is, is that giving of ourselves, that willing giving of ourselves for the benefit of someone else. And yes, ideally, that giving of ourselves is accompanied by an appreciation and enjoyment of that other person, right? That's, that's a good thing, that kind of feeling. Sometimes you don't have that feeling, but then when you start to give of yourself for another person, then it's, you start to develop some of those kinds of feelings. Right? But love, agape, the essence of it is this giving of ourselves. That's love. That's what Jesus demonstrated, even to the point of dying on a cross. Now, John is not telling everyone in the church that they literally must die 
for other people. There are certain extreme circumstances where faithfulness to God may require that incredible sacrifice. But uh, that's not really what John is talking about here. And I think that's important for us to recognize because if I just say, oh, you know, John is telling us we've got to be willing to just die, right? Well, practically speaking, most of us are never going to find ourselves in that situation, right? So what does it really mean for us here? Well, you can see that John immediately applies it. And what's his application? Be ready to literally die? No, it is if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So John says, think of the way that Jesus gave himself, even to the point of dying on a cross, if that's the case, then shouldn't we who follow him then be willing to give generously to those who are really in need? If the love of God is in us, then of course we're going to give generously to those in need, right? Generous giving is what love looks like. <clears throat> now, right now I could try to take some time to really hammer home this point about the importance of generosity. But what I would rather like to do right now is to just take a moment to appreciate the generosity that I've seen in this congregation among us. Because I really do believe that one of the, the gifts, one of the uh, strengths of this congregation is its generosity. Um, we are not a huge church, right? Not by any stretch of the imagination. And I've been here for seven and a half years now, and we've never been a big church. We've been a bigger church than we are now. But throughout that whole time, there has never been a time when we couldn't pay our bills or when we couldn't pay the salaries or when we had to choose between paying the rent or paying a salary. There's never been a time where we couldn't meet our... Um, our, our outreach obligations. That's never happened in seven and a half years. It's amazing to me. And so I should say, many of you may be aware of this, but when I first got here, I made a choice not to know who was giving and how much people were giving because I never wanted that to influence the way I operated. Like, I didn't, um, I didn't want to have in the back of my mind, oh, so-and-so is a big donor, so I have to make sure they're happy, right? I always wanted to be led by, you know, what God was leading me to do and say rather than what maybe the biggest donors in the church might want. It makes sense, right? So, I, if you are an especially generous giver, I don't know that. And, um, or I should say, I probably don't know that. Um, and so that comes with benefits, as I just described. The downside is that you know, I don't get to thank you personally for that particular thing, right? But I want you to know, I greatly appreciate it. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it. And I know that 
Overall, you are all generous because, like I said, we've always been able to meet the budget. And that is not the only reason that I say that this is a generous congregation. I mean, over the last seven and a half years, I, there are more examples of generosity than I can articulate. But, you know, just a few recent ones that come to mind. You know, a couple months ago, uh, Ron's basement flooded. And, you know, right away, there were a whole bunch of guys that were just there to pump it out. And water kept coming in as fast it was go as it was going out. But they were there to pump it out and, and to move all that stuff uh, out of there. It was, it was a big job. Um, but they were just there. They, nobody, there was no... No major summons or threats or anything like that. They, they just showed up. Um, you know, uh, Ayako Mitchell put together two meal trains for the Lori family, and people signed up to deliver those meals, to make those meals. I know that's not easy. I have a hard enough time feeding myself. You know, and so when you guys decide to put together a meal for somebody in need, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And... You know, there's always a little bit of fear in me when somebody says, oh, let's do a meal train. I'm like, will, will people make the food? We're a little congregation, you know, and that's awkward if a meal train is started, but then people don't make food. But, but it happens. Every time it happens. So you guys are generous. I remember a little while ago, um, Keith and I were talking to somebody about somebody in the congregation who had a need. And then just, you know, really fast, this person pulls out like $300 in cash and just, oh, give it to them. Who carries cash, right? <laughs> <laughs> but there it was, right? So, you know, I, I, I don't want to stand up here and just say, you got to be generous, you got to be generous, you got to be generous. I just want to say thank you for being generous. Keep being generous, keep putting this into practice. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, it's, what, it, it's what God wants the church to be. Um, all right. So there's one last part of the passage that I want to address. Um, if you're like me at all, this was the part that when we read it, it was the hardest to follow. It's uh, verses 19 through 22. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. What does John mean there? Well, I, let me be very, very honest. Sarah and I moved this week, uh, so I did not get to look at this as closely as I wanted to. Um, so, but I, I did look at it closely enough to know that there's debate about this passage and what exactly it means. And it probably won't surprise you to know that there are some people that think this isn't the best translation. Now, there's a lot of passages like that, but this one in particular is a tough one. Because there's several words in there that can mean different things. And uh, one, of, one of the, uh, the subjects of debate is how best to translate the word here that is translated as heart. 
Because we hear the word heart and we, we might think of something like our conscience. Um, but at least uh, one, one commentator that I read said that we should think of the word heart here as representing our ungenerous desires. Our ungenerous desires. Um, and so when John talks about our hearts condemning us, remember, remember he's just talked about how we should be generous, right? So when he talks about our, heart, our hearts condemning us, we, we should think about when our ungenerous desires are really strong. And when he talks about our hearts not condemning us, we should think about when we do the right thing rather than listening to our ungenerous desires. So <clears throat> here's what I, I think John is talking about. Sometimes you know in your heart that you should give of yourself in a particular situation, right? Maybe some money, some time, some energy, um, giving some attention to somebody in a particular moment. But the ungenerous side of you is rebelling against that, you know? And it's, it's trying to make some argument to say, not my problem. So John is saying that when our ungenerous desires are strong, we need to remember that God is greater than those ungenerous desires, meaning God is really generous, right? God gave Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. God is way more generous than what your ungenerous heart is telling you in that moment. And in those times when we feel overcome, uh, by our ungenerous desires, uh, we need to remind ourselves of God's generosity. And uh, in those times when we do manage to overcome our, our ungenerous desires, he's saying that we're going to find our relationship with God coming alive. It's going to become stronger because we're going to be acting in line with his will. And we're going to experience our prayers getting answered more because we're going to be asking for the kinds of things that God really wants. So when you hear that voice, that voice that is discouraging you from generosity, that voice that consistently says, not my problem, not my problem, not my problem, don't be too quick to give in. Now, I know this is compli complicated. Yes, there are some times when someone's need is not your problem. You cannot solve everybody's problems. You're not meant to be God. You, yes, we have to have some boundaries, okay? All of that acknowledged, okay? At the same time, do not be too quick to give into that voice. This is not my problem, all right? Remind yourself of the generosity of God, the generosity of Christ, who did not look at humanity and say, not my problem, right? But who said, I will give of myself for them. So commit yourself to living generously, because as you do, you will have confidence before God and will receive what you ask. Sometimes we feel spiritually dry. I think anybody who has tried to walk with Jesus to do this life of faith for an extended period of time experiences times of feeling spiritually dry, like God feels distant, 
uh, like things just don't feel as real as they used to. Uh, you, you might be thinking, I want to feel God, but he doesn't feel close. John would say, if you want to feel spiritually alive, be generous. Be generous. Become generous. Because practicing love, real love, is the key to bringing us near to God and experiencing his presence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your generous love. Uh, and we pray that you would help us to embody that generous love to one another and to a world that needs it. And Lord, if we're feeling spiritually dry this morning, uh, we pray that you would help us to, to see ways that we might be able to give of ourselves for those in need. And um, we pray that as we do, Lord, we would experience your nearness and we would experience the ways that you meet us in prayer and answer our prayers. We give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.